Father, we are again coming before you with uh, praises and thanksgivings, and we do thank you for all things, because you are the one who is sovereign, not us, and our governments are not sovereign, our leaders, uh, our politicians, uh, those who promote um, strange doctrines, uh, those that control the media, none of them are sovereign, Father, but you are. And you work all things together for your purpose and for your glory. But uh, for us who live in these dark times, um, it's uh, often very difficult. We do cry out to you that you would protect us and uh, our dear ones, and that you would protect our president and those that serve with him in government and all those on every level in the state governments, certainly that are in the light right now and very visible. Also, local governments, Father. I just pray for all those that serve in various other ways, uh, the police, the, the, the fire, and the uh, EMTs, our military servicemen, missionaries, there's so many who are on the front lines, and we read of them in prayer letters and and are encouraged to see how they are uh, seeing fruit in these difficult times. So, Father, however, however things uh, go here, we know that we have opportunities to be a, a bold testimony for you, and you will draw uh, those to the faith that you so choose Father, thank you that um, you've protected our president and those that serve with him greatly. And I pray that you continue to do so and give victory to him and to others who are suffering these great attacks from the enemy. It seems like they're never ending. It seems like they are accelerating. So, Father, I, I pray that the evil one would be set aside, that he would be destroyed in his efforts to destroy this great nation, and that it might endure if that's your perfect will for us, Father. So, Father, thankful we are indeed for uh, opportunities to be a light in the darkness, and I pray for a meeting this morning that you bless us uh, greatly as we open your word this morning. And we would thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we reach the end of First Timothy. I won't quite finish the letter today. We'll save that for next week or maybe even one more after that because I want to summarize the entire letter properly before we go on to Second Timothy. Seems so appropriate to me that we're going through the Timothy letters at this particular season of our of our year and. Uh, and nation, as it were, with so many challenges. And uh, there's so much here that should be taken to heart by each of us, isn't there? Last time we we looked uh, at uh, these final exhortations, at least some of the last ones given in this letter to Paul's son in the faith, Timothy, and uh, entitled that, Laying Hold on Eternal Life. Today, we'll do Laying Hold on Eternal Life, Part 2, reaching the very last verses there in the letter. 
So last time we, we we saw what Paul's exhortation was, he he said to Timothy that there were several things that should never be forgotten. Never, ever should they be forgotten, no matter what uh, this life brings. And one of them is that the Lord and only the Lord rules now and forever. Only the Lord rules. And the second was that Christ is the Lord of glory. <laughs> and eventually the full glory of our Lord will be revealed. But even now, his glory is revealed in and through his work in us, right? And then the third thing is that, um, and I think he, he picks this out of uh, many of the challenges of the day that he might have focused on. He could have picked any number of different subjects. But he, he focuses in strongly on those that have been blessed greatly in this world with riches. And he says the rich have special responsibilities and that um, should not be forgotten. And I think the implication is that uh, we shouldn't be holding on to these riches too strongly because they may soon be gone in any case. Right. Others may steal them from us or in some ways um, gain enough power that they may do this. Right. Uh, and that the riches we do have should be used for the Lord's work. So uh, that's what we focused on last time. There were a couple of uh, very key verses that we looked at. Uh, several of them really focus in on two things that go together. Uh, they are, first of all, that there's a, a, a spiritual battle underway and we must, must enter into it. We must not turn aside from the spiritual uh, attacks that come our way and somehow settle down and feel at home with them as it were and just assume this is the way it is. But we must fight what Paul calls the good fight. He, of course, it's an exhortation to Timothy. He says, fight the good fight of faith. And then he says, lay hold on eternal life. Those two, uh, in Paul's mind, go directly together. And uh, they fit together in an interesting way. I believe strongly that what Paul is saying, that if we don't wage spiritual battle, we won't really be able to grasp fully onto eternal life either, right? Because we will become worldly, we'll be consumed with the affairs of this world, and uh, the life of the Spirit will uh, be far from us, right? Uh, we possess eternal life, but are we enjoying the Lord? So, you know, to lay hold on eternal life is something that those who are fighting the, the, the spiritual battles can gain considerable uh, understanding of and fully enter into. Okay, so uh, he quotes from Ephesians uh, and uh, 6.12. He says, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So in, in the letter to the Ephesians, which was written after Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, somewhat, not much, but a little after, it is a prison letter, and the Timothy letters, First Timothy is not a prison letter, <clears throat> nor is second. So, written just after these letters, within a year or so at the most, 
right? Um, he, he writes there, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places in the heavenlies, right? It's a heavenly warfare. Uh, we're down here on the earth, but uh, the forces are manipulating uh, earthly affairs from the heavenlies, right? Those are fallen angels and so forth. So, wow, <clears throat> what a what a heavenly-minded kind of statement that is to understand exactly what kind of warfare this is. And we easily forget that, even if we know it, we forget it. We think our battles here are earthly, right? It would make a big difference if we considered them to be heavenly in their origin. Okay, so then this, this issue of fighting a good fight mentioned by Paul in his second letter to Timothy right at the end, and this is written just before his execution, right? Um, in fact, I misspoke a moment ago. I said the second Timothy was not written. Uh, well, it was. It was. And it's the last thing that, that Paul wrote. And uh, in the last verses there, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So Paul had kept the faith and had kept it until the end. When we see words like this, um, keeping the faith, we should understand what he's talking about. He's not talking about remaining in faith, but more than that, he's talking about keeping, protecting, guarding, honoring the faith. The faith is the revealed word of grace. That's what the faith is. That's what needs defending, okay? <clears throat> because the enemy mostly wants to destroy that, and they'll take us uh, all along with that if they can, right? So that is uh, what that is talking about, keeping the faith. Paul had kept the faith. He's exhorting Timothy to do the same. Now, in this sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul puts all this in the context, though, of who Christ is, okay? And uh, he doesn't want Timothy to forget that, because if we ever forget that, if we forget who Christ is, then we can't wage this warfare, this spiritual warfare at all, right? We won't even know what, uh, what what's involved in the warfare. We won't know what the tools are to be used uh, and uh, and how to fight, what is worth fighting about even. We won't know. We don't know who the Lord is. And so he reminds him, he says, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul is exhorting Timothy there to carry on the fight to the end, as Paul himself has, right? And never forget who it is who uh, we are uh, honoring in this battle. It is Christ Jesus, right? Uh, says here, he, God quickens all things and uh, everything is before the Lord. The Lord oversees it all, right? The whole plan as it's developing. Okay. He says that Christ is the Lord of glory and uh, everything is about him. And uh, that is uh, there found as well in chapter six. He says, uh, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ who in his times, in his times, he shall show us. So who is in control of the calendar of events? It's it's not, uh, you know, worldly leaders, <laughs> whatever they may think, they're not really in charge. The only power they have has been given to them, right? And he says, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his times he sh shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Okay, so, so it is. Uh, these are simple statements, but there's so much there, right? Who only hath immortality, hmm. right? Christ uh, has been raised from the dead and never to die again and has uh, in that resurrection uh, became, become a life-giving spirit, giving life to all who come by faith, right? So with that as a backdrop, he then focuses on a very practical issue. We still all live in the world uh, and this is a dark place. The time of great trials and suffering is often upon us. And uh, so how then are we to live? And he singles out the rich, the rich, right? He says uh, in verses 17 through 19, they shouldn't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, right? And then he's, he ties that again, like he has it back in verse 12, mentioned laying hold on eternal life. So he says, the rich, they may lay hold on eternal life if they use their riches wisely, right? For the work of the Lord. And uh, if they don't, if, they, um, if they're caught up in worldly affairs, then they will be missing the mark, right? And they will not be laying down a, a firm foundation against the time to come. I like this language here, and we're going to come back to this kind of language later today in our study. But uh, the eternal life is something we already possess, right? But, I mean, every believer does. But are we enjoying it to the full? So it's something we already possess, but do we live in the light of it, right? And that's what it means to... to uh, lay hold on eternal life. It's to take it in, to fully benefit from it, 
So the promises are eternal. The life as it will be in eternity is something far beyond even anything we can comprehend today with our limitations such as they are. But we do have it, it deposited in us and we are able to live in the midst of that life. That life is to overflow and bring forth eternal fruit. So that's what it means to say, to say we're laying hold on eternal life. So the big question is, are we? Are we laying hold on eternal life? Or are we laying hold on something that will soon pass away? And that's how he ends that, uh, that exhortation to Timothy to instruct those in the assemblies regarding this, especially focusing there on the rich. Okay, well, let's uh, get into our subject today. It uh, is the last two verses in 1 Timothy. And our outline is pretty simple. Uh, again, uh, the exhortation is to Timothy to, first of all, keep that which was committed. He says, keep that which is committed to thy trust, Timothy, that which was committed. So to keep it. Secondly, thy trust will be opposed by many using false knowledge. So false knowledge would be the means of attack of the enemy. Against what? Against what's been committed to his trust, right? Thirdly, his final exhortation um, that the faith itself is under attack. The faith itself is under attack. Don't lose sight of that, Timothy. <laughs> And then the last uh, thing in the letter is his uh, salutation, right? Grace, the glorious theme. Grace, the glorious theme. <laughs> Paul bequeaths it, as it were, to Timothy and to all those that would take this, this letter to heart, right? Okay, so first of all, and we'll be asking Lisa to read these two verses, to Timothy, he says, keep that which was committed to thy trust. Okay, Lisa, would you please read First Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Okay, those are the verses that are before us today. I had thought we would read them over and over and over again because I'm, what I'm going to do in each of our four sections here is just to, to pick um, a portion of those verses as we go along. So first of all, the first section, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Okay. The Greek language here means to be on guard, to carefully watch and protect, okay? To carefully watch and protect, to be on guard regarding what? Regarding what was committed to thy trust, okay? Well, what was committed to his trust, do you think? Well, the same thing that was committed to Paul in fact, the one who committed it to Timothy was Paul. 
Paul is in effect passing off to Timothy the mantle, <laughs> somewhat somewhat like Elijah passed it off to Elijah, right? <clears throat> but uh, it's the teaching that's the key thing, right? The teaching. So it was the teaching that was committed to his trust. That's why this letter over and over again is is about the teaching, the doctrine, right? The doctrine of grace, of course. Um, and uh, there is a verse, I'd ask, uh, ask Tom to be ready to read it. it it's a, a verse that where Paul speaks to the same thing, only in reference to himself. Okay, what was committed to his trust? Okay, so Tom, would you please read for us Ephesians 3.8? Unto me, who am the less, uh, who am less than the least of all, saints in this grace given that i should preach among the gentiles the unsearchable riches of christ <laughs> what a great verse thank you tom the unsearchable riches of christ must be preached and this was uh, given to paul and he mentions grace there and that is a use usage of the word grace little different than what we might normally think of, but it is, in fact, uh, one of the primary ways Paul uses the word uh, grace. We'll talk about that uh, as we go along here, but uh, it says directly there that Paul was given grace, okay? Well, we know, of course, that every believer is saved by grace through faith, so that's one way the word grace is used, and we might generally think that's what is meant by the word uh, grace in that sense in other words as we often have said trying to define the word right uh, g-r-a-c-e god's riches at christ's expense meaning uh, the grace uh, relating to our salvation our forgiveness from all of our sins right and the gift of uh, a true righteousness justification right so grace in that sense but here i don't believe that's what he is talking about no he says this grace was given that i should preach the unsearchable riches of christ that's a special enabling given to paul and a special responsibility has come with it so that's grace in a far more practical sense this isn't about Bible doctrine. This is about receiving something as a gift, right, that is going to be used in one's life. And uh, we need to think hard on that. I mean, that that, that uh, relates to us directly then. How do we live in uh, times of trial and suffering uh, or times of abundance, right? How will we live? Uh, and are we living with the enabling of Christ or not? And in what way is grace in the middle of our lives right uh, grace is sufficient for all things well that's something always to be kept in mind and are we enjoying the lord therefore as he works all things together for our good right and what is it that we share with others now what is paul sharing he's sharing grace right and we'll see that he ends his letters with a, a salutation to that effect okay so here, uh, Paul is exhorting Timothy. Now we get back to uh, to First Timothy, and 
I want us to read another verse. This is in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. Gail, I want you to read that for us. But uh, you'll see that grace is being used here in a very special and significant way. Gail? Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Gail. Well, I find that this is an area where we often fall short, right? Yes, we've been saved by grace, but our lives uh, examples of grace, or are we still caught up in fleshly concerns, maybe spiritual uh, destruction even, sometimes comes our way as we turn away from the Lord, right, for a time. But, um, uh, you know, are we, as Paul exhorts Timothy here in 2 Timothy 2.1, are we strong in grace? That is in Christ Jesus. Are we strong in it? In other words, is that grace which has been bestowed upon us really making the difference or not, right? I mean, now, Paul's exhortation to Timothy is that you've got to pursue, you've got to engage in the battle, you've got to lay hold on eternal life. You, there are no, no options here, Timothy. This is where you are because something has been deposited with you, namely the true doctrine, right? And now that needs to be uh, lived out and it needs to be shared with others, right, that they also may grasp on to grace and its full consequences. Okay, so there's no uh, no option here. This is where Timothy is, and Paul is making sure he, he believes that. Uh, so this grace is really an empowering, right? It's an empowering. I, I want us to, to uh, consider that uh, in a scripture that's found in another letter of the Apostle Paul's, and that's in 2 Corinthians. And there are two verses there, really it's really one verse, but in its context, three verses, Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. These, these words have always been precious to me and to Patty. So, uh, Sarah, would you please read this for us, Second Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 9. Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnest and in the love we inspire in you, see that you abound in this glorious, this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Okay, thank you. Thank you, uh... Sarah, so this is an exhortation for believers, okay? For believers, that means for us, right? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye, through his poverty, might be rich. This is talking about more than our eternal glory with the Lord. This is talking about now, here and now. Are we rich now through his poverty? 
If so, we have received his grace and it is uh, changing us continually, right? It's working in and through us. So grace is an empowering. Okay. Uh, my, well, we'll leave that behind. I mean, Timothy is uh, is exhorted strongly to, to, to keep, to protect that which is committed unto him, and that is uh, the word of his grace, right? And to live it out in boldness. Okay. Now, what is the opposition going to be? He's telling Timothy what it is here. He says, <clears throat> your trust, in other words, what was given to you, what was entrusted to you, will be opposed by many using false knowledge. <laughs> oh, the enemy loves to twist the words. He loves to uh, skirt the issue. He loves to... Uh, tell a story uh, that's confusing, that leads one astray. Well, we certainly see that, seeing that in the days in which we live, aren't we? We're seeing that on every side today. What is uh, the enemy really doing? He's uh, conflicting with and denying uh, the truth of God. That's what he's really doing. Okay. There's a lot of uh, dimensions to that. So, um, I'll read it again. He says, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Okay. Profane and vain babblings. What are those? Hmm. Well, that's what the enemy speaks. The enemy of our souls, the enemy of the faith committed to Timothy, right? The enemy of the true doctrine is using what is called here profane and vain babblings. Why are they babblings? Because they, they don't amount to anything. It's like a person speaking a foreign language and you do not understand it. They're just babblings, right? They're profane, meaning they're worldly, they're ungodly, right? Ungodliness is being promoted as good, and that which is truly righteous is being promoted as evil, right? Do we not see that on every side, right? So he says to Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings. Uh, and then he adds these interesting words, Oppositions of science falsely so called. <laughs> well, I certainly know something about that. I was caught up in a science that was falsely so called for a while. <laughs> the word science is just a word that means knowledge, okay? Knowledge, huh? Worldly knowledge is promoted as the truth, right? Uh, and today we have whole branches of uh, academics called science, that's the word used for it, <laughs> as if somehow that uh, is supreme over all, and therefore uh, 
science needs to be used to uh, uh, critique the truth of the Word of God, the Bible, right? As if science or human knowledge is above uh, godly truth and knowledge, okay? So some of us were caught up in that, and we had to learn our lesson the hard way and to leave that behind, right? Uh, and it was the Word of God, of course, that gave us that instruction. Well, what are some of these things that science falsely so-called? In other words, it's not true science because true science is not going to conflict with the truth of God, right? So what are some of the things that uh, false science proclaims? Well, um, I don't know what order to put these in. Uh, I'm sure that... Uh, I'm putting it in, in what you might consider the wrong order, so it's not any particular order that I'm uh, using here. It's just that one thing in particular really is very much on my mind these days, and that is accepted as truth without even any qualification or consideration, without any doubt at all, and that is called the theory of evolution. Hmm. Reminds me of something else we're hearing a lot about these days, critical race theory. Well, it all comes out of the theory of evolution if you see how it all fits together. Okay. Uh, the theory of evolution is based on an outright denial of all that the Bible teaches about origins. Origins is the key word. True science can never address origins because origins are, by definition, begin before everything that is observable, right? It's what's behind it all, right? And how it happened, and all we can see is the evidence of that uh, scientifically, right? So the theory of evolution addresses things that are not observable. It uh, addresses causes and effects, right? And uh, it goes beyond what can actually be seen, right? And that's what the theory of evolution is. It's just a theory. It's just an idea, and it's an ungodly one, indeed. But what a what a what a disgrace it is that today. All major Bible seminaries have given themselves over to such teachings in one way or another. I don't know of any that haven't, okay? Um, some will say there are other uh, views that should be respected other than what the Bible teaches, but just that the, the biblical view is probably the best. Some are stating it that way, but many are turning entirely against the biblical uh, statement of origin. Where did it all come from? The book of Genesis, of course, is key in giving us understanding of that, right? The theory of evolution is what's being promoted everywhere you look, right? As if it's proven scientific fact. And of course, that is a lie, right? Science, as he calls it here, falsely so-called. Okay, uh, then uh, there's another dimension to this. It's, these are all related, of course, but another dimension is that man's knowledge is being elevated over 
the word of God. So in general, that's the case. Absolute truth is being set aside. What's put into its place is relativism, okay? My opinion, your opinion, is if they're all sort of on the same level and no one can judge between them, right? The ancient Greeks uh, said this. They said, man is the measure. Man is the measure. And it was a statement of relativism, right? Uh, in the 20th century, uh, when I was, uh, in fact, uh, entering into independence, having grown up uh, in a very confused time just after World War II, right? But in the 50s and early 60s, uh, people begin to speak like this. They said, I'm okay, you're okay. Or in other words, we can't judge another person, right? Uh, oh, well, how biblically wrong that is, right? Oh, how terribly in error that is. But to elevate man's knowledge over the absolute truth of the word of God, that is uh, at, at the heart of many of the errors of our day, right? And you see how directly this uh, cuts through and contradicts the word of the living God, the Bible, right? The scripture. Another thing, the substitution of what is popular for true science. Science has been, quote, popularized, okay? There are bookstores full of books about science uh, when really what what we're reading is nearly on the level of mythology right the true scientists are not writing these books generally speaking right because <clears throat> uh, they know that true science cannot be popularized so that anybody could think they have an understanding of it right no uh, <clears throat> so what used to be true science has been perverted and changed into what looks more like science fiction. You might remember uh, some programs that were on TV years ago, one of which was, uh, what was the name of it? Science fiction theater? <clears throat> yeah, I'm forgetting the name of it. I liked it at the time, <laughs> unfortunately, <clears throat> but there wasn't much of true science there. So, the word science is misused. We hear it today used all the time. Oh, we must, uh, we must uh, agree with science and with the scientists because they all agree on what? The virus and what it is and how it needs to be uh, attacked, right? Well, they don't agree, in fact, and uh, it's totally a lie to somehow uh, elevate that kind of science with true science. Well, but what's the worst of the errors? The worst of the errors of the enemy is in regard to biblical interpretation. <laughs> it's the worst because it affects everything else. It, it affects the minds of the people. And, uh, you know, in the, in the public schools today, there are a lot of errors being taught. <laughs> but what's even more serious is what um, people are saying the Bible is saying or not saying, right? Uh, should the Bible be taken literally? Should uh, the dispensational periods be distinguished? 
you know, what about the fundamentals of the faith, right? Uh, what about salvation? Is that by works, by works plus faith, faith plus plus works, or is it by faith alone? Uh, are works uh, uh, involved? Uh, how does God see it? What is grace really, right? So these things are so important. The gospel itself is perverted and changed from the gospel of the grace of God into another gospel, right? It's one of the several most important things the Apostle Paul writes about, right? So it is the faith that is under attack. That's what the enemy most wants to do, is to destroy the faith from the hearts and minds of the people of this earth, right? So he wants to discredit the Bible. He wants to set it aside. He wants to declare it not to be not only important, but even not even to be accessible, right? Um, the enemy doesn't want there to be a Bible in a bookstore even, right, or online. Um, he wants it to be removed altogether. He wants the book burnings to proceed. Uh, not only Bibles, but any other book that uh, speaks truth from the Bible. Okay, so that's uh, the faith um, that is under attack. And Timothy is exhorted to uh, wage war against it. Then he says uh, in the next thing here that uh, some have erred concerning the faith and uh, they've professed a true faith when really they didn't have it. And of course, that is what you might expect, right? The enemy is all about that. Uh, oh my, the faith has been so thoroughly perverted. It was happening in Timothy's day and Paul was exhorting Timothy in his last words here to take a strong uh, position regarding that. Well, he ends with these words, grace be with thee. And we will have to come back to this next time, but there are 14 times, 14 times that Paul in his letters uses these words at the end. Grace be with thee. What grace, right? The grace of salvation, no, this is the grace. This is the grace that has been deposited in us that's to be worked out. That's to overshadow everything else in our lives. This is God's uh, blessing to us in this life, right? Leading to eternity, ultimately. We're to grasp on to eternal life. And as we do so, we're to allow the work of God in us to be flowing forth abundantly. When he says, grace be with thee, <laughs> he, he means, <clears throat> may your life, Timothy, be overwhelmed by God's abundant grace. That grace is called the grace of Christ. It's a very, very special blessing indeed. Um, 14 times. How about this one, um, Romans 16, 20. 
And may the God of peace bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Or how about this one? Uh, Ephesians 6.24 Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Or how about... Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 22, very last words of the Apostle Paul, written before his martyrdom. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Well, the grace of God is our entry point into all eternity, but it remains for us to enter into this grace fully now. And so Paul exhorts Timothy in that way. And Patty, Patty, I'd like you to read uh, those two verses, Romans chapter 5, are all about that grace <clears throat> and its abundance. Romans 5.17 and 5.21. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. By Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So if this teaching is correct, then there's nothing more important in life than the outworking of the grace of Christ in our living. That's abundant grace, right? This is eternal life for now with eternal rewards for later, right? And that's what he's saying. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. There's so much there that we don't have time to fully teach this morning, but uh, this is, I think you'll have to accept that this is only an introduction to our lives of grace, which should proceed on and on and on until we're caught up into glory, right? What does Paul say in Romans 6, 4? Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So enjoy the Lord, all. God's work is going on. It is great. It is glorious. It is glorious indeed, and that's, uh, it's like a spotlight through the darkness shining on each of us, right? And reflecting off of us into the darkness. May God's work be abundant in us. We live in dark times, but the light is still shining. Praise the Lord. That's where our hope is. And that's where we should live, enjoying the Lord and his good hand that rests upon us. Well, amen and amen. <laughs> uh, are there any comments? <laughs>
probably have a lot of comments today, right? Any comments before we close today? If we have a minute, yes. Go ahead, um, Ed. We have we have a minute. So, <laughs> you know, there's probably no end to what can be said in response to that. Um, I'll I'll uh, I'll limit it to just a minute or two, um, and especially in keeping with your earlier theme of laying hold of eternal life, mm. something from Romans seven, which um, you know normally I think or maybe often has a has sort of a reputation for being uh, in some way a uh, darker uh, chapter in the scripture. Mm. But um, I think as you, uh, as you examine it, as the Lord opens it up to you, you might find that there's a lot more light there than we had uh, thought or remembered. Yes. Uh, yeah. So um, I wanted to read a couple of uh, verses there, just make a quick comment on them. Um, because um, here Paul is trying to illustrate our relationship to law, uh, the principle of law, and how it affects one's life and behavior, and um, and and the results of that. And, uh, um, so I'd like to read verses two, three, and four. Might in the beginning wonder what does that have to do with this, but maybe in the end I can tie it together for us. For the woman um, which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. And so then, while her husband is alive, she is. Um, if she be married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from that law, so that she is not an adulteress, even if she is married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you might be married to another. Even to him who was raised from the dead, that you should bring forth fruit unto God. And it's really, it's really in this verse four that's the, the the light and the the key to what I wanted to say this morning. Um, it seems that we have, with respect to laying hold of eternal life, it's a from a high level view. It's it's a twofold thing, a twofold process perhaps, uh, not, to, not to degrade the eternal life into a process, but uh, one we find here that what's required to lay hold of eternal life is to be free from the law, mm -hmm. and not just the law or the law of Moses, but as we learn as we go through this chapter, the principle of law and how that uh, excites the flesh and uh, really just energizes the sin nature. And that if we're not freed from that, we have no 
way of living for God or laying hold of eternal life. And the second of these uh, two principles here uh, is that we, as we read in verse four, that we be wed to another. And um, it's it's really, I'll just reread those, uh, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And so the second principle is that we be married to another, to the one that we know is Jesus, in whom is eternal life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and when he gets to the end of the cha- chapter 7, um, <clears throat> he underscores that so strongly, doesn't he? And <laughs> Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? <laughs> I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So we need to leave the flesh behind and as we're married to another. Yes, indeed. Laying hold on eternal life. Thanks, Ed. That's great. Really, very good. Any other comments by anyone today? Okay. Well, let, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Father, without this word, we would uh, not be able to look upon the affairs of this earth as passing away because they'd be overwhelming us with their reality, their presence, and their power. But Father, thank you that we do have the word of the living God and we can uh, think on things in a heavenly manner. We can understand what's really going on here in this dark world. And uh, we can see with eyes, uh, spiritual eyes, uh, your work and the glory of it and the blessings of it. So, Father, I pray that we would recognize the value of uh, the deposit that's been made. And not only Timothy's received it, but we also now have received it through your word. And to the extent that we comprehended it, I pray, Father, we would be able to adequately share it with others who do not yet know the glories of your grace. And, Father, there's so many who are religious and who are caught up in legal systems and thinking of one one form or another or self-glory, uh, Father. And yet uh, we ourselves who've been so blessed, Father, I, I do pray that we, we would uh, lay hold on eternal life in these trying times. And uh, that we would never stop believing who's truly sovereign, Father, and uh, what work is being accomplished by you, by our Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, and by us as uh, we are the instruments of your work here. So, Father, may you be honored, may you be glorified, and may your grace abound in our words and in our lives. To your honor, to your glory, in Christ's name I pray, and, and amen. Well, praise the Lord for the glories of God's grace. Amen. Amen.